Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Coach Trevor Connor, here with my pasta-loving co-host, Rob Pickles. Carbohydrates, particularly simple sugars, are a complicated topic in the world of endurance sports science, and also one of the most controversial. In the recent episode 259, we talked to Dr. Asker Yukonrup, who, along with Dr. John Hawley, have really led the way in strongly supporting the need for carbohydrates to perform based on decades of research. But there are equally respected researchers on the other side of the camp who believe that we can perform just as well on a low-carbohydrate diet. One of those respected researchers is Dr. Paul Larson. He's been involved in recent research that shows endurance athletes have no loss in performance after adapting to very low-carbohydrate diets, like the keto diet even during short, explosive efforts. Our talk with Dr. Larson will be a follow-up to our episode with Dr. Yukonrup about the pros and cons of carbohydrates. As Dr. Larson points out, they agree on 95% of the science, but the other 5% can be important. During our conversation, we dive into whether endurance athletes can truly perform on a very low-carbohydrate diet. But more importantly, we discuss the health implications of a diet based on simple carbs. As Dr. Larson points out in one of his recent papers, there is such a thing as an unhealthy, high-performing athlete. This includes a deep dive into the impact of a high-carbohydrate diet on the immune system and why endurance athletes have higher rates of diabetes and autoimmune disease. Finally, we talk about the impact of exogenous ketones on both performance and recovery. Unfortunately, we used up all our carbohydrate side interviews for our episode with Dr. Eukendrup. But that's okay, because we didn't have a lack of things to discuss with Dr. Larson today. So... Grab a plate of pasta or salmon, it's your choice, and let's make you fast. There are more female athletes in endurance sports than ever before. Yet, until recently, female athletes simply followed the advice and protocols that have been designed and tested on men. This is now rapidly changing, and there are a host of experts bringing light to the perils and pitfalls associated with female athletes following guidelines that are male-specific. Check out our latest Craft of Coaching module, Coaching Female Athletes, for expert guidance on coaching women. Well, welcome, everybody, to another episode. We are really excited to have Dr. Paul Larson with us. Dr. Larson, I'm embarrassed to say this, but this is the first time we've had you on the show. No, not the first time we mentioned you, because we recently did an episode talking about a bunch of the research that you did, which was a really fun episode for Rob and I. But great to have you in person on the show. Thanks, Trevor and Rob. It's great to be here. I did listen to that episode, and and uh, my ego was was uh, this high. So yeah, it was it was awesome. Thank you. You did a great job on it. Yeah, thank you. Well, obviously, we know you as a researcher, and you have produced some absolutely fantastic research. But I, I think something worth mentioning here is you are now venturing into also being a businessman. You have a couple businesses that you've recently started up. Yeah, I don't know if it's recent, but I, yeah, I mean, in the last five years, I guess, I left the sort of research area in terms of a focused and then went to write a book, right? Uh, Science and Application of High-Intensity Interval Training. And basically, after we wrote that book, we just kind of said, well, we can't just have a book. We need to have a course. So the course turned into a business, ultimately, and that's called Hit Science. And then the second business, so you know, we can't just have a course. This whole area of AI is moving quite rapidly let's be in that as well because it doesn't look like it's slowing down so yeah the second business is called athletica ai and it's the technology version of the hit science sort of brand the um the educational platform that that is so 
yeah, those are the two businesses. But I'm I'm also still a um, an adjunct professor at two universities, actually, both uh, AUT University in New Zealand, and I've just joined uh, Stephen Seiler, who you have an often as well at the University of Agder. So um, I'm still into the research thing there as well. Sort of, you know, try to be in that nexus between science and application. I actually think that the whole AI stuff is where the next level of research is going to go. We're going actually going to get more information. And that's why I actually want Athletica to be a little bit of a research platform. We're already right. running studies on that. So, um, yeah, that's me in a nutshell in the last five years. That was one of the things that I thought was really unique about your platform. There, there are several AI training platforms out there that are really focused on just building training plans. But yours is far more than that. And you are going to be using it for research, which is really exciting to see. Yeah, and we already are. So we're already running a, a female menstrual cycle study in collaboration with HRV for Training and Miracare Fertility as one example, just to, to look at whether f- different phases of the cycle are impacting training load and training load response performance. So, and, you know, should a woman train specifically harder or softer depending on the phases of the cycle? Fantastic. Well, it's going to be exciting research to see. And interestingly, Dr. Larson, you have quite a wide range and scope because today we're not talking about any of that, are we, Trevor? No, we're not. But this is something you've been doing research on lately. And today's episode is kind of a continuation episode. So not that long ago, episode 259, we had Dr. Eukendrup on the show and we talked about carbohydrates. And I can't remember the final title we had for the episode, but the, the working title I was using was carbohydrates, the double-edged sword, because there's a lot of researchers out there who are saying to perform at a high level, to be able to do really high-intensity work, you need carbohydrates. But there is a health impact to simple sugars, and that's what we really wanted to cover in the episode. And obviously, Dr. Eukendrup is very much on that side of, yes, you need carbohydrates. It's a huge topic. In that episode, I remember I have built this big outline for it. And as we're going through the show, I'm going, well, we'll have to skip that. We'll have to skip this. We'll have to skip that. Because there was just no way in an hour we could cover everything. So Dr. Larson, this is kind of the continuation. This is let's cover those things that we weren't able to cover in that episode. And more importantly, get your perspective on this. So maybe we just start before we dive into this. What's your one, two minute summary of your position on the need for carbohydrates in, in high-performing athletes. Well, first of all, I was just you know, I love that podcast, and I I just want to start by saying that I agree with like ninety-five percent of the take-home messages in that one, and I highly recommend that yeah people go back and listen to that. This is as Rob kind of called it at the end um, the parody podcast that you guys would do after that one. <laughs> so, but yeah. I mean, my stance on carbohydrate and and its need in performance can be summed up in the word context. So it really depends on the context of what's sort of sitting in front of you. That's where I that's where I've landed on like today when I look at the 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 field. So if you are like Rob, a high carbohydrate athlete, if if you indeed you are Rob, then all of the rules that are currently out there they they apply. But I also deal with very low-carb ketogenic athletes that go very well, win, win races, win big Ironman events in the world. And in their context, 
that's not necessarily the case. There's something different that's kind of going on. And this is where, you know, this is what we'll probably dive into a little bit in the research is can we do things a little bit differently? You know, and I'm definitely in agreement with everything you've said on that podcast with respect to the fact that on game day, you definitely want to throw gasoline on the fire to, uh, you know, to kind of get everything you can out there. But maybe it's not as much as every, we, we started here there, you know, with 90 to 120 grams per hour and stuff. I've seen it done a different way. And maybe that other way could be healthier. Maybe the jury's still sort of out on that. But that's, yeah, that's sort of a two-minute sum of where I sort of sit on the area. No, it's a good summary. And I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I think even a, a topic like this, you know, we've had Dr. Holly and Dr. Noakes on the show. Dr. Holly is very much, you need carbohydrates, you need carbohydrates, you need carbohydrates. Dr. Noakes has been very much on the, I think you can perform on a ketogenic diet. So that's about as big a difference as you could see. Yet when we had them on the show, when we were bringing up the other's points, they're kind of going, yeah, no, I agree with that. And I agree with that in principle. So it was ultimately in kind of those details that you, you saw the disagreements. Totally, yeah. And again, when I want to review back that podcast you did with Asker, yeah, you guys are talking about eating, you know, in Asker's words, it's like, yeah, if you're going out for like a, you know, 90-minute, two-hour ride, you probably don't need anything. So he's saying that, and he's, you know, an ex-Gatorade Sports Science Institute leader and those sorts of things. And so, yeah, it was great to hear. But yeah, if you want to perform and it really matters, well, then you can throw gasoline on the fire and you're probably going to be okay. You, you, you are probably going to get a little bit of an inflammatory response, but on a one-off, you'll definitely, you'll recover from that. Well, so far, this episode is starting off much too nice. There's not <laughs> enough conflict. We know that people thrive on conflict. And so I'm just going to bring this up. I'm going to bring this up right now to the both of you. I prepared for this episode while eating a bowl of noodles. Go ahead and take the carbohydrate out of my cold, dead hands. I want you to try to convince me otherwise. Go. Nice. Nice. <laughs> All right. So we got our theme. We got, I'll go after your noodles, but we can save some of that until a little bit later. <laughs> oh, you want you want some noodles? Trevor, you're, no. you're hungry. You know when was the last time I actually ate noodles? Half past never. I know yeah. you. It's been like 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever, carrot boy. <laughs> My team used to want to do interventions on me when, when I went paleo because we'd be at races and they'd be having the giant pasta parties and I'd be eating salmon with vegetables and they'd be like, Trevor, you can't perform on that. And just get really upset at me and try to convince me to eat their noodles. Well, let's start there, right? Do we need carbohydrate to perform? And maybe for the people who haven't listened to episode 259, Trevor, I would love to hear your recap on when we say carbohydrate, when we're talking about that, what specifically are you referring to? Yeah, so I'll give the, the quick definition and then I'll give the summary of some of Dr. Eukendrup's points and then Dr. Larson, please take it away from there. So just taking a step back, there are three major what are called macronutrients in our foods. There's proteins, fats, carbohydrates. What's important about the macronutrients is we can use all of them to produce energy. So any function in our body that uses energy, actually the direct energy source is something called ATP. But our body needs to produce ATP from AMP and ADP. And we use carbohydrates, fats, and protein to create that ATP. And they can do it at different rates. So the advantage of carbohydrates is it can produce ATP very quickly 
but a, a single molecule of glucose can't produce that much. A fat molecule produces ATP much slower, but it can produce a lot of ATP from a single molecule. And then protein, it actually takes energy to use protein to produce ATP. So our body preferentially will always use carbohydrates and fats before it will use protein for fuel. So you have to be pretty deep into a long ride before your body starts going, okay, let's, let's burn that protein. Let's, let's get some energy there. I get that right, Dr. Larson? I would say so, for sure. The only thing, that, again, back to my context comment, is that you know, in a fat-adapted athlete, I think they can probably utilize fat at a faster rate than we might think. Otherwise, absolutely the same. And then there's also something I wasn't going to go too much into, but there's something called oxidative priority, which is which of the macronutrients your body's going to burn first. So if you eat a mix of carbohydrates, protein, and fat, which of those is it going to oxidize first? And the order, and some, you know, some people consider alcohol a carbohydrate. Some people consider it actually a fourth macronutrient. But the order tends to be burn alcohol first, then carbohydrates, then fat, and then burn protein. For some people, it's a totally separate food group. Yep. We can also add in the, the ketone as the fifth macronutrient as well. Yep. The reason I was explaining what I did about these macronutrients is the argument that Dr. Eukendrup and Dr. Hawley have made is, well, we can go forever on fat. Their argument is you can't do really high-intensity work on fat. So... You're chugging along at a kind of a slower pace. Yeah, your body's going to be completely fat reliant. And the point that he made is as you increase intensity, you start seeing a ramping up of, of carbohydrate oxidation and you'll see fat oxidation kind of plateau at a certain point and then actually start to decrease. And this was Dr. Holly. An argument that he made in one of his papers is, well, you can improve your fat oxidization at the same relative intensity. So if you're at 90% of VO2 max, no matter how much training you're doing, you're always going to be relying about the same amount on carbohydrates or fuel. Meaning at high intensities, it doesn't matter how trained you are, you're going to be mostly burning carbohydrates. And so his argument is fat's great for lower intensity work, but if you're in a race that requires jumping, sprinting, really high intensity, if you don't have those carbohydrates, you're not going to win the race. And I would say that for most individuals who are eating a varied diet, we have all experienced kind of that glycogen depletion that ultimately limits our ability to work at those high, hard intensity levels. I know that my legs can certainly feel heavy. Uh, I can struggle at efforts above threshold. But Dr. Larson, something that I think that you're especially keen to talk about is if we change that context, right? If people adapt their bodies to the usage of fat as a fuel source instead of, I'm going to call it a normal, even though maybe that's not the right word, a normal mixed diet, you know, that one diet leads us kind of on one uh, set of, of results, but by altering the metabolism of individuals through training, through daily diet, maybe through supplementation, we can alter the pathways that we otherwise thought that we knew really well and have completely different results. That's right. That's exactly it. So if you go through, this is what the research is, is now showing, is that if you go through an adaptation period on a well-formulated, low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, that you can increase the maximal rate of fat oxidation. So it doesn't have to be down in, you know, 
uh, 0.1 to 0.3, what is it, grams per minute. It can be upwards of one, close to, you know, 1.3, 1.5 is what these, these, these studies are now showing at high exercise intensities, higher exercise intensities. And I totally know the research and the studies that Dr. Holly is referring to with respect to the fact that we should think that at 90% of VO2 max carbohydrate is, is king and fat is not. But there's other research that's out there on the falsity of this analysis. And it's in the fact that when we are oxidizing high carbohydrates, we're also producing lactate and hydrogen ions. And what winds up happening inside the body is we see a meeting of that those hydrogen ions with sodium bicarb. And that produces, of course, carbon dioxide. So you get outside at, at those high exercise intensities, you're also you're getting a lot more carbon dioxide. Well, why is that important? Well, it's important because that is blinding us from what's actually going on. When, when there's a whole bunch of carbon dioxide that's being spewed out, it's making the situation look like there's a whole lot more carbohydrate that's actually being oxidized than actually is. And the tracer data, and there's very few because these studies are very expensive and hard to do, but there is tracer data to suggest that fat can be burned at a much higher rate than we have originally thought. And really think about it from a practical standpoint. Do you think that the muscle cell that's low in energy is going to throw away a perfectly good source of energy in terms of its you know, fat being there? Does fat disappear in the muscle cell? I just don't believe it does. So I think if you change the context, you can have much higher rates of fat oxidation at high exercise intensities than we think right now. And again, anecdotally, Trevor, I know you would know as a, as a low-carb-ish athlete, my athletes would know that as well. And yeah, I think everything that you said in the, in the intro, Trevor, is, is right. But when you do change that context, I don't think it matters as much with respect to the, um, the energetic sort of properties, like, you know, in terms of the carbohydrates burning hot versus the fat not. I think that those carbons and hydrogens still pushing through there can be um, burnt by oxygen at the cell level. And we can, we can get a lot more ATP out than we think at high in- intensity exercise from fat. Before we go any further, I want to take one step back and explain the concept that Dr. Larson is talking about here. When we're in the laboratory and we are trying to determine what fuel source or mix of fuels ultimately an athlete is using across different intensities, then we have that athlete hooked up to a metabolic cart and we are capturing the gas exchange that's occurring. So uh, we know the ambient environment. We know the ratio of oxygen and carbon dioxide. That's what the athlete is breathing in. But we're also capturing everything that the athlete is breathing out. And through looking at the ratio of oxygen and carbon dioxide, we can back calculate because we know based on the the chemistry, the biochemistry, the stoichiometry within the body, we can back calculate with relatively good accuracy the substrate that is being burnt or the mix. So when that ratio is closer to 0.7, then the athlete is burning, we would assume, kind of a a pure fat or a high fat situation. And as that number climbs towards 1.0, then we would assume that the athlete was in more of a carbohydrate burning situation. But as Dr. Larson is pointing out, anything that skews that carbon dioxide, right? If that carbon dioxide isn't purely metabolic, 
then it can skew the number toward the carbohydrate end of the spectrum. And, and as he's pointing out, the buffering, we've talked about bicarbonate buffering in the past here, and we might even have talked about soda loading as an ergogenic aid, is going to produce additional carbon dioxide. And that can make it look like somebody is burning more carbohydrate. Whereas the tracer data that he's uh, referring to is consuming carbohydrate that's laced with carbon-13, if I remember correctly, and then being able to look specifically for those carbon-13 molecules. So we're not looking at the ratio anymore. You're counting the carbon-13 in the exhaled breath, and that can be a little bit more of an accurate way to say, yes, this molecule specifically was broken down for fuel, and I know that because they ate it, and now they're breathing it out. So metabolism must have occurred. Yeah, excellent summary, Rob. Thank you. I think another angle to look at this from, we actually just did an episode on Dr. Hawley and, and read a review he did in 1997 or 98, I can't remember which year, where he addressed that and basically said there, there's no research to back this. But one of the counter arguments, Dr. Larson, the, that I think you're making is a lot of those studies were just, let's have you eat a high fat diet for seven, 10 days. And they didn't really have a chance to adapt to it. And if you had done, get on that high fat diet for several months, you might see very different results. Yeah, I mean, or worse still, right? They're taking athletes who are otherwise adapted to a high carbohydrate diet. They're acutely uh, causing glycogen depletion, and then they're putting them into a performance test. And of course, in that situation, you're taking somebody completely out of you know their normal working conditions, so they're they're going to perform poorly regardless. So Dr. Larson, what are your thoughts on this? I think you guys nailed it there, is the fact that the bulk of the research to date and, you know, to coin some of Louise Burke's papers, you know, nail in the coffin and stuff on fat adaptation, was just, unfortunately, the, the, those studies were just, they were all a max of around, around seven days. You know, sometimes there were three or five days. And then I think anecdotally, people were just saying when they, when they went longer, and this kind of came from the health area where they started going longer and longer and, and, and seeing more and more adaptations and benefits. So anecdotally, the people were saying, well, no, this is actually, actually feeling and performing and recovering a whole lot better when I go longer on this. And then, you know, to do these studies are so ex hard and expensive and, and time-consuming for, uh, for researchers. They're not easy to do. They require a lot of money and patience. And now we're starting to see more of these, you know, one-month, three-month kind of studies going on. And now we're finally starting to see the, the data coming in to support the fact that Maybe you can get away short term, at least, on not having carbohydrates ultimately in your diet to perform at high exercise intensities. Well, maybe you can even go even better. Well, you have several of these studies. So you have a four-week study and a 12-week study where you were looking at fat adaptation and, uh, and high-intensity interval training and found no loss in performance. Yeah, uh, and that was, uh, so kudos to Lucas uh, Cyprian out of out of the Czech Republic. He's done some incredible work with his team out, out there and I've been fortunate to be a part of those. And yeah, exactly to your point where we asked the same sort of question and, and we went for, we started with a four-week four experiment and we had two different groups on two different diets, uh, high or low carb. And basically we just looked at pre versus post, I think it was VO2 max performance on the first one. 
And indeed, we, we found no difference in, in VO2 max performance. Uh, you know, it's just a standard test in, um, you know, recreationally trained su subjects. So that was just sort of the starting. So it was just interesting. They didn't have any carb in their diet, but their VO2 max performance, you know, standard step test was the same pre versus post. And then we did that one for 12 weeks. We brought it out even further and, and we added in some high intensity interval training work in there as well. And once again, there was no difference in high-intensity interval training performance. This is on a 30-15 intermittent fitness test in more kind of team sport athletes um, throughout that study. So again, there was, there was more data for that. And then, of course, we took even more biomarkers throughout these sorts of lengths of time as well, right? We weren't just looking at the performance, but... We'll get into this as later on, I'm sure. But the the striking finding was was that there was evidence that there was a lot more, you know, there was a better health outcome ultimately, and no no decrement in performance with the sort of well formulated lower carbohydrate high fat diets. So that was yeah, and that's that's our work. And then and now we're seeing um, the group of Prins at all, Tim Noakes, Andrew Karnovic. You know, these guys are doing some incredible work with um, with showing, again, even more detailed work and, and um, long durations and showing really high fat oxidation rates and no decrement in performance. And these guys are doing one-mile time trials, and this is, these are in runners. And yeah, again, no, no decrement in one-mile performance. And they did a um, repeated measures design too, which is even more powerful. So you got to go through both diets. There was even like, you know, some subtle differences in terms of not statistically but subtle differences in terms of uh, performance outcome in the in the lower carbohydrate diet and and you know, concomitant with fat loss as well or the body composition data was even better as well so yeah there's we're, you know these these are still early days but when the this context is changing we're not seeing this same typical outcome that we have thought for so many years where you have to have carbohydrates in your diet to perform at high exercise intensities. And to your point, you made this as well, Trevor, a little bit, is that it's, we're not saying carbohydrate isn't used for that, but uh, I've heard you guys say it before. There's a whole process of gluconeogenesis that's going on. The liver is just doing things, the body is doing things in a different way to get that, that carbohydrate. And it's, you know, it's, it's ultimately all down to the liver. The liver's an incredible machine to be able to create the carbohydrate that we need out of the fat and protein that we put in our, in our bodies. So we don't have, it doesn't have to be carbohydrate from the start. It can be fat and protein to do the same job. Something I want to point out from Dr. Larson's study is that the athletes who were on the high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet were consuming uh, less than 50 grams of carbohydrate per day. And to put that into context, that is a third of a cup of pasta, right? So think about You're one of the... everything in terms of pasta. Yeah, right? man, that's... <laughs> dude, noodles, that's my life right there. But that's not a lot. And that's the total amount of carbohydrate, right? So ultimately, these people, you're not eating pasta. This is what you're getting from eating probably just some vegetables, not even fruits, right? Because that's not a lot of fruit either. And so when we talk about low carbohydrate, it's it's quite a small amount, quite radically different from the typical diet that most people are consuming. You are in keto territory. This is a ketogenic diet. 
That's right. And yeah, I mean, it's often a, it's a good way to go about research sometimes. It's, it's, you know, you kind of, we, we often look at the extremes. I mean, you go back to the podcast you did with uh, Dr. Zuckendrup, 259, and that was, um, you know, he was talking about a very extreme sort of situation where he had a, he had his guys on a lot of, uh, you know, some really high, high carbohydrate contents, right? And again, sort of same, same sort of thing for this. We're looking at very low carbohydrate content in the diet. But that's not to say that the nutrient density wasn't exceptional as well with this. So, um, you know, there's the micros and and vitamins that were coming in would be pretty solid. And um, they built a, I think, I believe they built a a healthy and robust individual in those one month to three month periods of time. Which is one of the biggest challenges. It's it's why I haven't been a proponent of, of a straight keto diet, because when you are cutting fruits and vegetables out of your diet, which a lot of people on a keto diet do, you lose a lot of those micronutrients you need and you end up with a diet that can be deficient. But I do think it's important that there are good ways and there are bad ways to go about any diet, Mm -hmm. right? And there are terrible ways to do a high carbohydrate diet and there are terrible ways to do a low carbohydrate diet. And health needs to be first and foremost. Big time, yeah. We're all all on page there. You know, in the whole battle, whatever you want to call it, you know, fight that kind of Rob, Rob started with, it's often been about the macronutrients and the micros have just sort of been forgotten in the whole thing. And they might be way more important than we, than we realize. In fact, I believe they are because they're the, they're the building blocks of all of the, the machinery that are in the body, like the mitochondria and, and you know, all of the the various processes that, that go on and, and the, the various aminos and essential, uh, essential fatty acids that are required to build the structures in the body. I just think those are just, they really were forgotten. Like when people fight about these sorts of things, that's my opinion. No, I, I agree with you. And uh, I actually, several years ago now, wrote a, uh, an article with uh, Dr. Cordain about the importance of, of nutrient density. And we actually created a table showing the the average density of the different food groups. And the argument we made is you can actually eat a very healthy diet just by focusing on nutrient density. I agree. And that's like in my own personal diet, that's what I, like where I've kind of landed. I've gone through all, I've gone through everything in my life, right? Like, so I'm in my fifties now and um, I've been vegetarian. I've been uh, extreme keto and, um, you know, and everything else in between high, way too high carb sugar based, you know, when I was, when I was killing it as a, as a young Ironman battler. And, and today I'm, I'm all about just the, the focus on the whole food the, yeah. and the micro and the density of, of nutrients that I'm taking in. So, and, you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but an, an argument I will make there when you get to people say, you know, I have problems managing my weight. I'm a big believer in this, and there's definitely research to back this, that hunger is not an on-off signal. When we are hungry, we're usually hungry for something. And I think one of the best examples of this is pregnant women, because if they are deficient in a nutrient, the the body gives priority to the, the child, the growing child. So that means the woman become very, very deficient. And you see these, what everybody thinks of these crazy cravings. But when you look at the things they're craving, they're usually really high in a, a particular uh, nutrient. And so they, they, just, they just have this sense of here's what I need. Here's what I'm really deficient in. 
And the argument I will make is when people are hungry, their body is usually hungry for something. And it's not just calories. It's, it's often particular nutrients. And so if you go and have a, a Big Mac and some fries, your body's going to go, well, that's great. I'll store all those calories. But there wasn't a lot of nutrient density in that. I didn't get what I needed, so I'm not going to turn off the signals. And I've always told people, stop counting calories. If, if you want to manage your weight better, just focus on a nutrient-dense diet. You, you'd be amazed how quickly you're going to be satiated and, and not feel that need to keep eating. Yeah, that's such such good advice, and it's very similar to the one I give my athletes as well. And yeah, it's yeah focusing on real food, eating when you're hungry, listening to your apostat. And unfortunately, the I, I think the, um, we've been we were sabotaged a little bit with you know the processed food that were you know makes up the majority of the supermarkets out there and and fast food outlets, and they're all dopamine based products ultimately that they they give you that short fix. But they don't turn off the apostat. They don't turn off your appetite. And you're always kind of constantly hungry. You know, you'll be, the dopamine block will be there for a moment. And you'll just kind of go, go back for more of that. And it's, um, it's, it winds up forming an addiction. I actually I wanted to share just how bad it can get with, uh, you know, I've got, I'm working with an athlete right now. And like just the diet plan, like, so we're, you know, he's, he's just come to us. So it's just, just, just sort of starting but here is like, this is a top 20, this is a top 20 swimmer in the world that I'm working with right now. And uh, like a uh, distant swimmer. So this is just how good you can get on crap ultimately. But like, I mean, I'll just read you some of the, some of the diet plan stuff that we're, that we're getting. So he starts, he wakes up in the morning, he has a carbo drink for breakfast. Don't know what that is, but then he goes and um, he does his training. He finishes his training with a protein bar and a pack of Doritos then he, for lunch, he has 500 grams of pasta with tomato sauce. Rob would like that one. For a snack, he has half a chocolate bar, then goes to a carbo drink for primer for his next training session, finishes that, has a protein bar. And for dinner, this is one, one of the days, he has KFC large, maxi popcorn, and a chicken combo, and then on to the next day. And again, it just repeats, right? And then we go, you know, McDonald's, 24 nuggets and large fries. And like, it's a complete... This is how a top 20 swimmer in the world is actually performing. And when I even bring up the topic of some of the stuff that we're speaking about today, there is very much a, an alarm that goes off in this individual's mind to even start to contemplate about eating whole dense, dense foods because there's an addiction problem in here with this, what I've just said, right? The he, that's, that's, he needs that sort of dopamine hit constantly around his training. That's how he, he exists. So this can be a very, very tough ask for me and the dietitian that are, are working with him. But, you know, yeah, so and, and I'm, I don't necessarily have the answers just yet, but this is, uh, this is a good, good professional development for me as well to, to get him inside his head and work on some mindfulness sort of stuff to be able to give him the tools to be able to switch this because continuing to do this is not going to help him be a top 20 and, and podium swimmer in the future. No, agreed. And that I think is a good transition to you wrote a paper that I quite enjoyed that was just titled athletes fit, but unhealthy raising this fact that, you know, we think of top performing athletes. Oh, they're such healthy people, but if they're not eating well, are they truly healthy? And no, they're not. You can only imagine, right? I won't say too much more, but it's like, he's obviously been doing this for a long time 
um, the processes in his body are not not optimal. He's not going to be recovering well, and this yeah will come back to get him. And but it is it's just amazing that you can be completely very unhealthy on the inside, but looking like you know the athletes that you know we look up to and we idolize and bronzed and muscular and all that sort of stuff. But there can still be some uh, you know a lot of various high inflammatory processes that are going on inside the body that aren't aren't optimal. It's amazing what the body can do. It's all stress at the end of the day, but the diet that I just listed off is a very stressful diet. That exercise and the training that's that's getting done, that's stress, but the diet is adding stress and it's not doing the a, a good job in the recovery sort of phase to heal and and rebuild. It's just yeah, it's not an optimal process. Yeah, and so to discuss the difference, performance and kind of being an athlete, right? That's the ability to do a specific task and to do it well, to run a mile as fast as you possibly can. But health is different from that, right? Health is the optimal function of the internal systems in our body. Health is uh, being free of disease. Health is longevity. Uh, and sometimes those two things are potentially at odds with each other. And I think that as individuals, we need to be able to have a holistic view and not necessarily give up one for the other, but ultimately, how do we maximize both health and performance because we're all athletes? Yeah, well, yeah, very well said. Exactly. It is It is kind of a holism sort of thing. It's all systems in balance. That's what it's sort of all about. I also reflect on a classic example. I'll just sort of say you can get away with this for a certain period of time. And again, our messaging with the high carbs through, you know, the Gatorades and those sorts of things. I was here as well. I did this too. Not that bad, but there was elements of my diet in my early 20s as an Ironman triathlete doing the same sort of sort of stuff. And my belief was that I could kind of get away with that. What winds up happening, and again, I know this intuitively from my own health, and I know this also, we can look at the PRINZ data as well, but over time, even the athletes, you can't out outrun a bad diet. You start to develop these chronically high levels of blood glucose, so much so that in the PRINZ data, there's 30%, three out of the 10 athletes were um, pre-diabetic in terms of their, mm -hmm. their blood glucose levels. So they're sitting at, uh, in the, the, I think it was, you know, around 115, 120 grams per deciliter in terms of the blood glucose levels. So they're, they're sitting elevated high like that. So it's not, the exercise is no longer um, holding, you know, you, you guys in the Asker's You Can Droop uh, podcast, you guys spoke about how exercise can control a little bit of that because of the insulin um, independent marker or ways of actually getting um, sugar into the cells. But over time, um, you will start to develop this um, hyperglycemia or hyper, and then you get a hyperinsulinemia and a various different cascade of, of health implications. So over time, it's it will kind of catch up with you. And the example that I was also thinking about was uh, Steve Redgrave. I don't know if you guys would know who that is, but he's um, Sir um, Steve Redgrave. So he's a very famous rower from the UK, multiple gold medals. He's diabetic now, right? And there's uh, and unfortunately, you know, I'm seeing this in other rowers. So I follow the rowing programs a little bit. I'm seeing this also um, happening too. And it's just 
the pattern or the behavior and the, the habit of always having that high carbohydrate, high sugar, the fact that we can kind of get away with it. You sometimes don't leave it later on. And a lot of our athletes, we can see them actually getting um, unhealthy as they, uh, as they continue if, uh, if they don't do something about that. And many don't, unfortunately. Hey, Past Talk listeners, this is Trevor Connor. Wouldn't it be cool to decide what Rob and I are going to chat about on an upcoming show? Or how about we answer a question on polarized training you're dying to know? What about a 30-minute Zoom call with Rob or me on your favorite sports endurance topic? This is all possible when we become a Fast Talk Patreon member. We have four monthly membership levels to fit your level of support. If you enjoy Fast Talk, help us stay independent in dishing out your favorite sports science topic by becoming a Fast Talk Patreon member. You can join us at patreon.com slash fasttalkpodcast. Something I always remembered from back in my racing days when I, I was traveling with teams, this is going to sound a, a little bit gross, but I always noticed this, particularly as I, I got to understand the, the physiology and, and understand nutrition better. But, you know, we'd be sitting there in the, the van or the, the bus getting changed for a race, and I'd watch all these, these young guys take their, their shirts off, and they all, their chests were covered in pimples. And I, I always notice that. And, and something our, our listeners might not understand, they'll try to give the, the very quick version of this. But an interesting fact for you is what sparks puberty? So when we go through puberty and we go through that big growth spurt is initially we become insulin resistant. So it's almost like a type of diabetes. Insulin and insulin-like growth factor are what produce puberty, what causes us to grow. If we start becoming insulin resistant, our insulin is going to go up. Our, so the, the insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1, is going to go up. And, and this has been shown in the science that basically what causes pimples is, a, I can't remember if it was insulin or, or IGF-1, I think it was IGF-1, binds to the, the basolateral side of our, our hair follicles and causes inflammation in them. And they seal up, and that's what actually causes the pimple. And so when I see that, when I saw that with my teammates, when I was going to the races, these, these pimples all over their chest, I'm like, you're showing early signs. You're actually becoming insulin resistant, even though you're in your twenties and thirties. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard of that one as well. And that's, it's, it's kind of, I can't turn it off anymore. When I see individuals, often athletes with a lot of pimples, you know, sort of now what's going on in their insides. You know, for those of you out there, if that's, if that's ringing a bell or if you know others, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to potentially change something and do, you know, eat a little bit more whole food. Yeah. Dr. Larson, when you were speaking earlier about hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia, it sounded a lot like, um, you know, we hear from Dr. Inigo San Milan about metabolic flexibility. Uh, the body needs the ability to utilize both carbohydrates, but also fat. And, you know, a researcher like Dr. San Milan, um, very much his philosophy is that the ability to do this comes ultimately from exercise intensity, right? And this is why he proposes a lot of uh, longer, slower work, zone two base in addition to the high intensity. I'd love to hear your stance on how much of this metabolic flexibility, I'll, I'm just going to use that term, you can use a different one if you want. How much of that should come from diet? How much of that comes from training? As you pointed out, athletes, training alone doesn't necessarily protect you. What's the best way to make sure that we have this flexibility as we move forward so that we're not, you know, burning carbohydrate in an appropriate manner? 
Yeah, it's a it's an awesome point. Uh, one of the key ones for sure is the fact that so there's lots of different ways to skin a cat when it comes to your metabolic flexibility. So my my main sport is the sport of Ironman triathlon. So for example, and you know Dan Dan Plews, many will know, Kona world record holder and fellow colleague, we've sort of seen this where we know lots of individuals within the Ironman level at the at the highest level they can train up to 30 to 35 hours or even 40 a week, right? So excessive, excessive training to get that metabolic flexibility that they're after. If they can grasp the concept around the diet stuff that we're talking about, they can probably do the same thing and bring that down to, you know, 20 to 25 hours, um, but more, more quality, but still more metabolically flexible. And they're ultimately getting a better adaptive response and they're ultimately, I guess, not inhibiting signaling in the post-exercise sort of period. And that's very anecdotal, I know, but that's what we see. And you can tell from a, from a performance standpoint, too, because these are all NO1 experiments, but they come in and they, they come in and they've done 35 to 40 hours. And then we can, you know, we bring them down to between 22 and 27, but we also switched, we, all, we do all that diet stuff as well. And yeah, they win events. So um, yeah, they, we've basically shown you can skin the cat a different way and, and it's likely a more sustainable uh, behavior to take with you the rest of your life. So Dr. Larson, I'm kind of excited about this because when we talked with Dr. Eukendrup, I, I brought up some of the immunological effects of carbohydrates and he said, you know, this, that wasn't his area of expertise. So we, we kind of brushed over it. You have said you are game, so I hope you are ready. But you wanted to hear my take on this first, so maybe I'll give the quick kind of five, ten-minute summary of some pretty complicated immunology, and hopefully my, my summary doesn't destroy it too much. Can you start even, Trevor, and just what's the role of the immune system in the body? What's its job? Well, that's the thing. Um, you know, this is something when I, Dr. Cordain was advising me that he always loved to say is whenever nature evolution discovers something useful, it finds multiple, multiple uses for it. So, you know, we always think of the immune system as you get a cold and it's what fights the cold. That's one function of it. But the immune system is actually a remarkably complex system of multiple, multiple signalers, multiple, multiple different types of cells. And our bodies have figured out a whole lot of ways of using them. So when you get sick, yeah, their job is to fight the, the illness. But as I'll cover in a minute, the vast majority of our immune system actually lives around our gut and, and protects us from any sort of invasion from the gut. But likewise, you go out and do a hard interval session and you do damage to your muscles, it's the immune system that actually comes in and repairs all that damage. So it's hard to, in, in one sentence, say, here's the function of the immune system because our bodies have basically said, this is this great, remarkably complex system. Let's see all the different ways we can use it. And that's important because as we're about to talk about, Diet and even exercise can get the immune system out of balance. And when the immune system does this much in our body, that can have really lasting negative effects on you if this system isn't functioning right. Yeah, 100%. I, I liked it. Its main role, I was doing some research before, its main role is to kind of distinguish between self and non-self and eliminate 
eliminate anything that's kind of doesn't feel sort of right to the self. I even wonder, because we're going to talk about sugar and its role, is sugar not feeling like the self to the body or in the various concentrations maybe that it's getting? Because it's really, we know that sugar really fires it up, right? Well, so that's going to get into something which I'm going to explain in a second. And we've talked about this on the show before, which is the, the TH17 Treg balance or T regulatory cell balance in our body. Before I get there, just one thing I want to explain to our audience is, and this is a weird concept, but I'm going to talk about our whole digestive tract. It's really important to understand that even though that whole digestive tract, you think of it as inside your body, physiologically speaking, that is not inside. That is still outside. And we have a huge protective mechanism to keep everything in the gut, inside the gut, and only allow the things that we need to come in. So that's our nutrients, that's our proteins, carbohydrates, fats, all our vitamins, minerals. And this is why our immune system, most of the immune system is along the digestive tract. It's to make sure that only what we want to come in comes in and everything else stays inside the gut. And we have billions of bacteria in our gut and we are fighting all the time to make sure they stay in the gut. When they're in the gut, they do a lot of great things for us. When they get into the system, they can cause a lot of damage. And so going back to what you were talking about of identifying self versus non-self, you know, first of all, remember, food is not self. So there's always an inflammatory reaction to food. But more importantly, what I'm going to get at is, is talking about this TH17, T regulatory cell balance. So some of the most important cells in our body are these T cells. And T cells are very good at identifying things. So every T cell identifies one particular, what's called an epitope. So think of an epitope as a, a marker on bacteria or a virus or anything that's invading our body. It finds the epitope on it and says, uh-oh, this is something bad. We need to respond to it. And T cells have memory. So like I said, every team cell responds to a particular epitope. Problem is there are epitopes in all of our own cells and we don't want our system attacking itself. So we have what are called T-regulatory cells, and T-regulatory cells identify self. And their job is to say, I just identified a self-epitope, hey, immune system, don't worry about this. Down-regulate. Let's, let's not ramp up the inflammation here. That is their job. This other type of cell that I was talking about called TH17 cell, and they were only really identified about 10 years ago. So we didn't even know they existed until relatively recently. They are a very inflammatory type of cell. And what the researchers who are looking into TH17 cells believe, at least from the research I've read, is their primary job is to deal with bacteria that get from our gut into our system. So when the defense systems of our gut break down, TH17 cells come in and take care of that bacteria. So they're very damaging. They can do a really good job, but they're not very specific. They kind of damage everything. This is the kamikaze pilot. It's like, uh-oh, something's coming in. Go in, destroy everything. You're going to damage self. That's fine. As soon as we've taken care of that bacterial infection or whatever it is, then we're going to ramp down the TH17. And one of the really interesting things they discovered a little later, because originally TH17 cells were identified in, in mice and rats, and they function a little differently in mice and rats. In humans, it looks like T-regulatory cells can convert to TH17 and then convert back to Tregs, 
which is really important because that means if a T regulatory cell converts to a TH17 cell, it can identify self and it can attack self. Hence, you don't want these TH17 cells around for very long. You want them to ramp up, do their damage, and then disappear. This is why chronically elevated and inappropriately elevated TH17 cells precedes every single autoimmune disease. Autoimmune disease is the body attacking itself. So basically what you're saying, Trevor, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're always having sugar in your diet, you're always going to be converting, you're going to always pushing, be pushing the Treg cells more to Th17 kamikazes, which are always kind of um, wrecking, wrecking havoc. And, and that's the chronic inflammation that we see, which you don't want. And then you got, yeah, the autoimmune problems. Yep. And if you want to geek out a little more, I, c- I can explain some of the mechanisms of how that happens. Geek, Trevor, geek. You guys ready? Oh. Geek deep. Yeah. Okay. So as I said, the belief is that TH17 cells, their primary role is to deal with bacteria that gets from the gut into our system. The worst type of bacteria, though, the ones that our bodies are really concerned about are what are called gram-negative bacteria. And the epitope that our bodies identify or, or look for on gram-negative bacteria is something called lipopolysaccharide, LPS. Our immune cells have a receptor on them called CD14. And CD14 has one role, which is to identify LPS. And particularly monocytes that are CD14 positive, if that CD14 identifies LPS, it's those monocytes that then go and say, ramp up the TH17. So here's where sugar, here's where high-carbohydrate diets come in. Obviously, we want to keep all that bacteria in our gut. We don't want it to keep getting in and ramping up that TH17. Sugar has been shown to cause what's called intestinal permeability. So normally all the cells in our gut are very tightly packed together so nothing can get through them. When we consume too much simple sugar, those junctions, those tight junctions between those cells open up and that can allow bacteria to get in. An even bigger mechanism, sorry Rob, going to your noodles. Everybody talks about gluten. Gluten is found in wheat. Everybody talks about it because it's awesome. (laughs) There is a particular protein in wheat called gliadin. Gliadin can bind to the the cells in our gut and cause a release of something called zonulin. And zonulin really causes an opening up of those tight junctions. So it, it causes what everybody thinks of as leaky gut. And this is a mechanism, it's much more severe in people who are, are celiac, but this happens in everybody. So the fact of the matter is, if you're eating a lot of simple sugar, if you're eating a lot of wheat, a lot of gluten, you're going to have this constant intensive permeability that's going to let this bacteria in. That's going to upregulate the CD14, which is identifying the LPS, and that's going to go and say, hey, Tregs, start converting to TH17. And it's going to keep TH17 elevated, and over time, that's going to lead to autoimmune disease. And... This is my theory. I've always wanted to write this paper, and I think this has now been written. You know, the, the old theory of, of autoimmune disease was that it was molecular mimicry, that a bacteria or a virus would come in that looks like self, and the body would respond to it. And then all of a sudden the body would be aware of self and identifying as something that's 
an invader and attack it. My personal belief is it's this chronically elevated TH17 that has this ability to identify self. And eventually it just hits a breaking point where our immune system will start attacking our own body. Well, and, and Trevor, I, I ultimately have the triple whammy because spicy food can actually capsaicin, yep. as far as I know, can cause the opening of the gap junctions as well. And, and I do have a little thing for hot sauce. Uh, I, I typically don't put my hot sauce on my noodles, but if I'm eating like Thai or something, then I suppose I'm getting them all in one bite. Yep. So I hate to tell you, we just killed everything that tastes good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Dr. Larson, was, was that geeky enough? That was incredible. I'd, I'd like, I'm not going to call you Trevor anymore. I'm, I'm calling you Dr. Connor. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty, pretty sensational. Yeah, I, I love it. And I, I really hope that you write that paper. I would love to. So it's fascinating stuff. I, I have found this beyond interesting. So I hope we haven't mm-hmm. lost all of our listeners. But uh... Well, maybe. I mean, it's, we were, and I think you're going to segue to this, but it's where does exercise and exercise intensity potentially come into this mechanistic bundle that you've, that you've thrown us? I responded to one of the members on your forum on this is really, you know, he has this question. He's experiencing leaky gut that you, that you call it with high intensity exercise. So is there something there that you can kind of throw into the mix where potentially this, this, this might also hit one or a number of those? Are you talking yeah. about a quadruple whammy? Damn it. Sorry. <laughs> we got a quadruple whammy. <laughs> well, as you know, there, there are a lot of very interesting studies where you see a much higher incident of upper respiratory infections in endurance athletes, particularly when they're training hard. And in many of those cases, they couldn't identify any sort of viral invader. And so one of the thoughts is it's actually the exercise causing the immune system to get out of balance. So you're basically having the sort of response you would see to um, a virus without actually having a virus. Let me quickly give some context. So I was talking about gram-negative bacteria getting into your system and, and really messing with the system. Everybody's heard of something called endotoxemia. Endotoxemia is just simply... A hole was punched in your gut, opening up the tight junction. Something allowed a whole bunch of gram-negative bacteria to get into your system. And the immune response was so forceful that actually that immune response is damaging you and in worst cases can kill you. That's basically what endotoxemia is. So there are studies that have identified, and I'm not looking at them right now, but I think they called it SIRS, which is basically you see in athletes who are doing a ton of high intensity work and they just do way too much and push themselves over this edge, you see a response that's virtually identical to endotoxemia where they, they see this huge inflammation, see their, their immune system kind of attack them. So it has been demonstrated that too much high intensity exercise or basically high intensity exercise can also cause intestinal permeability. So it can allow some of this gram-negative bacteria in. It's also been proven, and we'll put all these, these references um, in the show notes for anybody who's interested and wants to read more about this. But there was a really fascinating study that showed that actually high-intensity exercise can ramp up TH17. So the concern we have, you went back to, you know, everybody thinks as athletes as being super healthy, 
But if you have this endurance athlete that's already causing some of this impact, already seen exercise ramping up TH17, causing some of this slight endotoxemia type effect, and they're eating this high sugar diet and high carbohydrates, uh, sorry, Rob, eating their noodles all the time, is this additive? And well, can this be really damaging the athlete? And one of the evidence that this study that I, I just mentioned, and give me a second, I'll, I'll find the name of it, is showing is that endurance athletes have a higher rate of autoimmune disease. Well, it is additive when the only thing that makes your noodles better is a teaspoon of sugar on your noodles. Just, just saying, yeah. if you haven't tried it, you should. It really, it kicks it up a notch, so to say. So the name of this study, just the title of it, Endurance Exercise Diverts the Balance Between TH17 Cells and Regulatory T-Cells. I think denial tastes great, so you guys could read it. I'm not, <laughs> personally, personally, I'm not going to bother, you know, and I'm just, I'm fully depressed at this point. So thanks, guys. Yep. Sorry. I'll get you to connect with, uh, with my swimmer, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so... Sorry, that's that's more talking than I normally want to do. Dr. Larson, what's your feeling? What's your response to all this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I was uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I was reflecting on my own, you know, way back when as an athlete as well. I'm sure you guys could too, where, you know, you finish, say it's like a, a five or a 10K race, right, where you're at VO2 max and you just get that uh, or, you know, half marathon, whatever, but you've been at a really high intensity for quite a long time. And you just, you, you can walk away and you feel, you actually like you're coughing and you just like, why am I coughing? Why am, you know, and you actually do kind of feel sick, right? So I think the, the listener, if they're still with us here, they, you know, they, they, they might reflect on that themselves. Um, same in a, you know, a, a crit race as well, right? Where you just write to the balls to the wall or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, that's, uh, I think that's the kind of what's happening in there. So maybe the take, you know, what's the take home message for that? You probably don't want to do those, you don't want to race too, too much. You don't want to do high intensity interval training too, too much. You really need to make sure that you balance that with the, with the recovery or zone two kind of periods of time, right? Back to the whole polarized stuff. Those are my two takeaways is, is that to me is an argument for the polarized training model. There's a health reason. And then also, I hate to, and everybody listening is going to groan right now, but the belief that, well, I do a lot of training so I can eat sugar and I can have my pasta parties and all that, and exercise is is going to prevent any negative effects. I mean, yeah, it does prevent some of the the insulin response, but it it isn't blocking of anything. It's, It's accentuating the immunological effects. So you do have to be careful about that if you're, particularly if you're doing this more for health. Yeah. And eventually health, you know, in all of us, it will become a priority, right? Like when you, as, as soon as health leaves you, it becomes the number one priority, right? So yeah. It, and I think, I just think the earlier you can start to think about it and act on it, the the better, you, the happier you'll be long-term so you can be on this planet a long time. And by the way, well, I remembered, I said, I'd, I'd try to remember the name of that other study. So the one that talked about SIRS, that, that huge inflammatory response is called trauma-induced systemic inflammatory response versus exercise-induced immunomodulatory effect. So it goes, you know, we've been diving really deep into this topic that makes me quite upset. And so I would love to <laughs> pull back a little bit and, uh, and switch over to more of a big picture question and that is, um, you know, Dr. Larson, in your experience or in your research, 
Have you seen performance benefit or performance degradation or health benefit, health degradation with working across genders? Uh, is sort of this advice applicable to male and female athletes? Yeah, I believe it is. I think, you know, we're all human beings at the end of the day. You know, we're equipped with some different uh, different gonads and, and um, associated physiology around that. But still the, you know... The principles still do apply. Females are naturally, uh, they tend to be better fat burners in my experience, but they're still equipped with the same organs that respond in a similar sort of way. So if there's a sabotage that's going on from a diet standpoint, they, you know, in terms of excess sugar, let's just call it, there will be the same sort of problems. We'll also say that, you know, there's been some, you know, I've had some excellent NO1 success with female athletes coming to me um, and going on a, a bit of a, a more paleo, a low-carb kind of diet approach. One of the great tells in a female is the returning of the cycle. Many will come to me with, uh, you, know, not, you know, not having a cycle present or at least, a, yeah, not too much evidence of one. And when the cycle um, gets back on track, it's, uh, it's a really good sign that... Uh, that things are, are back working as they should be. Yeah, and again, it, it really comes down to, it's not, it, it's, it's probably not the shape necessarily of the macronutrients, but it's probably the micronutrients that are going in there in the, in the changing of the diets, getting away from that sugar, having a more nutrient-dense uh, profile in the diet. And um, yeah, lo and behold, you know, stress is reduced. And when stress is reduced, uh, there's a relief of the HPA axis and the HPA axis is connected to the gonadal axis. And um, then that comes back and, and performance is kind of coupled with it as well. So, um, yeah, it's just similar principles in, in my experience. I know that not everyone believes in that, uh, that it is that way, but that's, that's my experience. Terrific. Thank you. That's it. Um. I'm sorry, I thought you, you no. had a question, so I was waiting for you. No, I mean, I'm, I'm getting carbohydrate depleted, and so my <laughs> cognitive function <laughs> has declined a little bit. That's funny. Yeah. See, if we go that, eat some pasta, and then we can keep talking. So, I mean, that's really something we should have. I mean, don't you wish we had, like, continuous blood glucose monitors on us? Because Trevor and I would just be kind of, you know flatline and stable and raw, but we just, we'd be seeing his, his yep. CGM values just kind of going down and going down. And, you know, he doesn't want to, doesn't want to have his past on camera. Hey, listen, you guys can be <laughs> stoic if you want, but I experience my highs and I experience my lows. That's living life. If you ask me. <laughs> yeah. Well that, I mean, I'm thinking of the Prince study again, and that's one of the cool things also that they showed sort of go back there, but it's a, it's kind of an important point. And it's the fact that when they, because remember, it's a re repeated measures design. When they went back and forth to the two diets, the profile and on the CGMs, continuous blood glucose monitors, something like a Dexcom or a Super Sapiens, it was just like it was way different when in the uh, well formulated low carb diet. Like it was just just this flat line of blood glucose levels compared to. The Rob Pickles method, where it is quite, you know, like he's sort of saying, it's a roller coaster, it's spiky. So, yeah, and I think there's something probably pretty important there. And of course, it's the, it's the, it's the insulin signaling, right? That's, that's kind of changing. That's a good one, Rob. <laughs>
uh, perhaps that's where we we finish out this episode because God knows I could, I could talk another two hours on this, but uh, no way, I'm man. Sure, we all could. I want I want Rob needs to go eat. No, I, I want to touch on one on one more topic here, and and this is one that that Doctor Larson brought up, and and it's one that I've mentioned in the past, and that's on ketone supplementation. Yeah, so you know, ketones are very important uh, to metabolism, especially in the high fat, low carbohydrate situation. So, Dr. Larson, how how does that tie into exogenous ketone supplementation? Yeah, I think it's a great one to kind of kind of finish on, and it's it's a because it's such a, an exciting sort of area where we're seeing a lot of this work coming out. So, a little bit of history: I was uh, very privileged back in the uh, I think it might have been like um, 2015 or whatnot. I got to visit uh, Karen Clark in her lab in in Oxford. And see, like, sort of the that was the first exposure of the of the Delta G, and we were I was there with Steven Seiler and and uh, Peter Hesbell and um, Tour de France riders and all these other kinds of uh, folks and whatnot, and uh, and it was it, it was um, again there was just sort of all of the anecdotal findings at that point in the game, but um, two two interesting ones I'll, I'll mention. Um, the very first one was the use of the Delta-G supplement in an individual with Parkinson's disease. And this was fascinating because they showed the video of this individual with Parkinson's disease, the classic shaky hand. And then they, they flashed to this individual after they'd taken the, the, um, the ketone supplement. Uh, and all of a sudden, the complete uh, a playing of this beautiful guitar that this individual could, could play. So it was quite moving and almost emotional to watch this response, right? Where it all, like acutely a dose, a big high dose of this Delta G, all of these ketones, these energetic ketones, all of a sudden masked this problem. So again, we started with ketones, as I mentioned in the beginning, as like the fourth or fifth macronutrient. We can use these ketones. We produce them when we sort of starve ourselves, when we um, are low on um, blood glucose and we're low on insulin. All of a sudden we have, our brain needs to get a different form of energy. And we evolved, of course, the process of producing ketones. There's three ketones, but the main one, the, the big one is the, the beta-hydroxybutyrate. And that's ultimately what you get when you take some of these ketone supplements that are on the market, right? You get a big bolus and a, a hyper-physiological amount of ketone in your system, upwards of between one to three to five millimoles, right? So these super-physiological um, levels of it. So that was sort of the start. And then the other interesting thing from that meeting at Oxford was the anecdotal findings from some Tour de France riders, very successful Tour de France riders. I won't mention names and stuff, but guys that had been around and they were using it. And one of the things that was really interesting in conversations with them was the fact that they weren't really seeing any of these acute benefits from the supplement per se, you know, in, in order, like when they were just, just taking, taking a supplement, it's like, like, oh yeah, I, I still felt good, but I didn't feel like incredible or on fire necessarily. There was, um, it was individual. Uh, some did have that, but not everyone, at least not the one that I was talking about. But where he did see an incredible benefit was the fact that, because he'd done multiple tours, right? And you can imagine, Trevor, you probably know, Maybe you as well, Rob. I don't, I don't know your background, but when you do these long, grand tours, you feel pretty beat up after multiple days, right? And that was the big thing that he was saying. He said, I'm, "I'm just, I was when I would have my ketone supplement after the race, 
I was no longer beat up day after day. I kind of, I slept a lot better. I recovered a lot better. And I just, the whole, I performed better overall in a large grand tour. So that was interesting. And this, again, fast forward to today with all these exciting sort of studies that are coming out now from Peter Haswell's lab. He was there, of course. So he went and, you know, it always starts with the athletes and the coaches first. And then the us scientists kind of go into the end and, and try to prove these sorts of things. Well, lo and behold, uh, Peter Haswell's group is showing the, you know, um, a reduction in the overreaching or overtraining type response an increase in EPO um, and angiogenesis as well. So more capillaries being being produced. So all these kind of things in the recovery phase, and that it almost sort of seems, if I'm going to go full circle, that seems to be the biggest bang for buck and benefit of these things that you'll see out there kind of, kind of coming out. Yeah, a couple points to note. Um, when we're discussing ketones and exogenous or outside the body supplementation, then we're talking specifically about ketone esters and and more often than not, I think every product right now is the BHB that you mentioned. We're not talking raspberry ketones or, or sort of these other things for what it's worth. It's also interesting too, that ketones have shown efficacy in uh, traumatic brain injury and, and recovery uh, improved outcomes as well um, by reducing energy deficit, by reducing inflammation and and for me, I will say acutely when I have used ketones, I don't know that it's necessarily a physical change because I am a high carbohydrate person when I'm riding. I'm, I'm usually trying to pack in as many carbs as possible, but I do notice almost a mood change. My mind feels more clear, more energetic. I'm more likely to be in a flow state. I'm more likely to be in the moment. And that seems like it happens immediately, but you know, we talked about this briefly back in episode uh, 270, which was a potluck that we did with Grant Holicky, uh, where I used, you know, ketones for recovery in Transportugal. And I've only done one other mountain bike stage race before, so I don't necessarily think that I have enough data to form a good conclusion. But um, I will say I was surprised with my recovery and my ability to continue performing day in and day out. So I'm not going to tie that directly to the ketones, but it was certainly part of the uh, process that I used for recovery every day. Tis the season for spring knee. As March sunshine and early spring weather inspires us to ramp up our riding mileage, our knees don't always keep up. If you've got knee pain, we have the solution for you. Fast Talk Lab members can follow our new knee health pathway, featuring our new director of sports medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt. See the introduction to the knee health pathway at fasttalklabs.com. I kind of hinted at this earlier when we were talking about the, the immunology side, that food is foreign to our bodies and food produces an inflammatory response. So it's really important to understand that our bodies have, have two states. We have the fed state and what's called the fasted state. And it's really, both states are very important and really important things happen in those states. And if you're not supplementing with ketones, your body does produce ketones and it only really produces them in that fasted state or simulated fasted state. And I do think one of the issues we have on, on the, the modern Western diet is we all are eating all the time. And we tend to always be in that more inflammatory fed state and not be in that what tends to be a more anti-inflammatory fasted state. We're seeing with these ketone esters some of the benefits of being in that other state. 
Yeah, and Trevor, I do think if we just really big picture on this, oftentimes the nations or the diets that have some of the best longevity also have kind of a slight caloric deficiency as well. Mm -hmm. An overabundance of food is not necessarily the best thing for us. Yeah, I mean, again, I keep going back to your episodes I was listening to, but again, there was a part in the Dr. Zhukandru podcast where you, you went to someone that was an expert who was training with some Kenyan runners. And he found it fascinating, the fact that he wasn't meeting his uh, his window of refeeding sort of phase when he was with the Kenyan runners. They, you know, they'd go and train in the morning, hardly have anything and whatnot. And then he, you know, they were back on the bus and they were, ultimately there was this big, long fasted phase. Well, yes, they were having super high, high carbs in their diet, but clearly there was a, there was a fasted phase. And he said that it was, uh, it was to make them tougher. Or whatever it was, but it was like it was almost like well, that could have been an, an important component of their whole training process was to um, go through that fasted phase. Well, I always remember that there's this great book that pulled together the notes of these explorers who had encountered a, uh, a hunter-gatherer society and spent basically, uh, I think, almost a year with this hunter-gatherer society, learning about them and from. I read this 10 years ago, so forgive me, I'm forgetting all the names. I could I could go and find it. But they said what was amazing about this society is they would get up in the morning and they would go and hunt. And in the course of their hunting, they would basically walk, run a marathon. And they wouldn't eat a thing in the morning. They would get up, they'd be in that fasted state and go do a marathon. And then they'd come back and eat. And they would make fun of these European explorers because European explorers couldn't do it. They had to keep eating. Yeah. No, I mean, it, you know, there's nothing wrong with experimenting with some fasted, uh, some fasted periods of time. Rob's uh, suffering right now, but <laughs> yeah. you can work on it. <laughs> he's, he's looking for the next noodle. <laughs> Got to get my noodle fix. Well, guys, I hate to say it. We're at an hour and a half in the recording. I would love to keep going, but I think we've covered a lot. Is it on that note, though, is there any last things, Dr. Larson, that you'd like to, to leave our audience with before we go into our take-homes? No, I mean, I want to say it's a great topic. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate what you guys do at, at Fast Talk. And um, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Well, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So let's finish as we, we normally do, one-minute take-homes. And, and Dr. Larson, if you need a second to think about it, but we'll let, let you go first. Yeah, I mean, the take-homes for me would be, again, as I began with, uh, with the podcast, is that you know, we do have all these tenets that we believe in the, in the exercise literature, you know, whether it's the carb-fat crossover effect, um, that you have to have carbs for high-intensity exercise performance. But the big thing is that if you do change the context, things might be different in all of that. So um, keep that in mind for the, for the future. Don't be afraid to uh, consider tinkering with a, a lower carbohydrate approach, all these various different things that we said about having these fasted periods in your life, don't be afraid of them. But uh, yeah, again, at the end of the day, it probably, you know, um, we're not too different from the former podcast that we, we started with, you know, eat whole food, uh, high nutrient dense diet as the staple and fundamental component of your diet. Good answer. Rob, you want to go next? Yeah, of course. You know, uh, in this episode, I certainly played up my love of noodles and I'm not going to lie. I, I do love myself a slice of bread and a, uh, you know, some, some nice Thai noodles every once in a while. But just like we've talked about, as Dr. Larson said, there's 
I think everybody understands what a healthy diet is. And, and if you don't, then you're lying to yourself. And, and that's a diet that's based off of whole foods. My diet, in the whole scheme of things, very much consists of lean meats, fruits, and vegetables, right? Don't get me wrong. I eat, I eat more grains than Trevor does, but I probably don't eat more grains than the average person does. So, you know, ultimately, uh, health does come down to the choices that we're making to put in our body. And um, when we do discuss this, then there is a lot of commonalities. Uh, excess sugar is not healthy for you in general, right? Um, I might allow a little bit more sugar in my diet, especially with a lot of high-intensity work than somebody like Trevor does. But that's one of the great things about nutrition is that people are able to self-experiment. And um, you know what? Go try this diet. Try eating less than 50 grams of carbohydrate and maybe give it sufficient time to see if you get positive adaptations in your body. What's the worst that can happen, right? You can go back to eating all the pizza and pasta that you want if it doesn't work out for you. That's great. But I always encourage people to uh, try it Try it for yourself. Educate yourself on all the various aspects. But at some point, the rubber has to meet the road. And, and you need to put things in practice to really find out. So I'd say my take home, I'm going to start with, I was listening to a podcast with that Floyd Landis was the guest and they were talking about nutrition and Floyd pointed out, oh yeah, no, our nutrition was awful. It was horrible. Even when we were racing in the Tour de France. And as I was listening to him talk, I kind of realized, I think that's part of why they were so reliant on doping products. You know, yes, there was the performance enhancement, but I don't think they were very healthy back then the way he was describing it and they needed the doping products to get through. So this kind of leads me to, you know, I really enjoyed that, that paper you wrote, Dr. Larson, about our athletes healthy. I think healthy and performance, as you said in, in the paper, can be two different things. But I do think to be a complete athlete, ultimately you have to have both. Even at the highest levels, I think it's important to be both healthy and to, to have that focus on performance. And that's hard to do, but I think it's everybody needs to look at nutrition, not just as what makes me a little bit faster, but also what makes me healthier so that I can have some longevity in the sport. Well, Dr. Larson, absolute pleasure having you on the, the show. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was awesome. Yeah, it was great. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet us at, at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at fasttalklabs.com or help keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Dr. Paul Larson and Rob Pickles, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening.